Go ahead and find Matthew chapter 4 with me. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. It's good to see you this morning. This is um, the fifth Sunday of the month, uh, which means on that evening we do something a little bit out of the ordinary. I want to issue the invitation. Um, On the fifth Sunday of the month, we do the most biblical thing humanly possible, and that is we read the Bible. Um, We do it out loud, and it sounds simple enough, but it's, it's it's a different experience, I think than one that we normally have. The preacher stands up, and I'll read a few verses or a verse here and a verse there in the sermon. But to just sit down and to hear the Bible, really as it was originally intended to be absorbed, which is to be read aloud by and large. And people sat and listened to long sections of the Bible read in the first century was the primary way they heard and and, uh, consumed the Bible. So come back this evening, and we'll have that. It's been a good experience for me, and uh, a lot of you seem to enjoy it as well. Matthew 4 and verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These words really constitute the official beginning of Jesus' three-year public ministry. John the Baptist had prepared the way telling people they ought to prepare themselves for the coming Messiah who would usher in the kingdom of God and now here comes that chosen one and Matthew introduces his message with this sort of summary statement, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that message, Matthew's arguing, is the central message Jesus preached. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's a consistent message in Jesus' preaching. I'm not sure we realize just how often Jesus is talking about the kingdom and how essentially everything he ever says is one way, in one way or, or another related to the concept of the kingdom. Just to get numerical with it, the word kingdom is mentioned some... 126 times in the Gospels in 118 different verses. Jesus, Jesus, most of his parables begin with these words, the kingdom is like. He's constantly telling people to get to repent and get ready for the kingdom. He is emphasizing how imminent the kingdom is. He says things like the kingdom is at hand. So today I want us to simply better understand this kingdom of God Jesus constantly spoke of. And we're going to do that through a particular, particular means. That is through comparing kingdoms. There are certain things that are true of all kingdoms, the sort of constituent parts of a kingdom. What is it that makes a kingdom a kingdom? And this is true in both the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. All kingdoms share certain characteristics in common. And I think through comparing kingdoms, through comparing Jesus' kingdom to all other kingdoms, we can better understand Jesus' kingdom. Um, There is a field in political science called comparative politics. And basically all all you do is you compare various governmental systems or policies or philosophies, you put them up against each other and you ask questions like, what does this do well that this doesn't? And what can we learn from this as compared to this? And what can this system take from this system to be better? And we figure out what seems to work and we figure out the nature of things. So my mission this morning is basically this. Why not do that with worldly kingdoms and the heavenly kingdom to see what we can understand that is unique about Jesus' kingdom and to appreciate it and to be better citizens of it. So what I have this morning are three commonalities to all kingdoms and then we'll compare how that commonality is really different from from the kingdoms of the earth. It's simple enough. Number one, 
I want us to notice simply this. All kingdoms have rulers. All kingdoms have rulers. Be turning with me to Luke chapter 1. We'll be there in a second. Luke chapter 1. The strictest definition of a kingdom goes something like this. A kingdom is a country, state, or territory that is ruled by a king or queen. By definition, a kingdom has a king. It's right there in the Word. Now, in the Old Testament, God made a kingdom for His people. For a time, after Israel became a great nation, the human leadership consisted not of a king, but of prophets like Moses, priests like Aaron, military conquerors like Joshua, or judges like Gideon. Uh, There was no human monarch, no human king. In this era, who was to be considered Israel's king? God was. And yet, you remember, at the end of Samuel's life, what does Israel clamor for? They said, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations, 1 Samuel 8 and verse 6. And to Samuel, and, and even to God, this request was tantamount to rejecting God's kingship. They'd rather have a, a human representative and not a divine one. God even said to Samuel, they've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from being king over them. And Samuel even warns them about the pitfalls of human kings, but they continue to clamor for one anyway. And that's how Israel's actual kingdom begins, when they have a king. And so we sort of survey that kingdom, and we think about the rulers that they had. What kind of rulers did Israel have? Well, we have some whose uh, the verdict is quite mixed. We have some that start out pretty well and then end in a much worse state. Solomon comes to mind. A wise man, an author of scripture, builder of the temple. If you read the, the story of the dedication of the temple, it's one of the high points in Israel's history. And yet as Solomon ends his life, his heart is corrupted by the idolatrous women that he marries. You have some who the, the verdict is not mixed at all. They are horrible from beginning to end. You have Ahab, who marries the evil Jezebel, who worships idols, who takes Israel farther away from God than they ever were before. Listen to this summary of Ahab's rule. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. There are a few, a select few, who are unquestionably great in many ways. Righteous, holy, yet still fatally flawed. Undeniably, the best king Israel ever had was David. Godly, wise, prudent, righteous, thoughtful. And yet, the top two or three things we know about him is his affair with Bathsheba, the subsequent cover-up culminating in the murder of Bathsheba's husband. You also have some pesky details of of David's family life. Between his sons Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, um, just to be frank, he's got some of the worst kids in the Bible. And at the end of his life, there's sort of a a mar at the end of his life. David commissions this census, um, which greatly displeased God and actually brings a pestilence upon the nation. David, in the end, may be a testimony to the fact that power can corrupt even the best of humans. And so we sort of got one marker here in our comparison of kingdoms. We've got Israel's Old Testament kingdom. Let's put another one next to that. The Roman Caesars, who were in power around the time of the New Testament, When we take them one by one, basically we have one infamy after another. And the contrast between their reigns over their kingdom and God's reign over his couldn't be more different. So you've got the first century Caesar, Tiberius, who is well known as being quite violent and debauched and a pedophile. 
while, while the old story of Nero fiddling while Rome burned is th- thought by most historians not to probably have actually happened, um, we can say from history he was not a great guy. He rules from A.D. 37 to 68. He was a persecutor of Christians. He killed his own mother to cement his power and was even said to have kicked his own wife to death. Domitian, the emperor at the end of the first century, he was the first Roman emperor to demand his subjects address him as Lord and God. You also have Caligula, who is the most depraved on account of his incestuous sexual exploits. And so we've got sort of another marker, another model of ruler. And to just continue on, to put one more marker there, the civil powers in our time and our nation cannot be strictly referred to as a kingdom. We don't meet the exact definition of that. And yet, um, we still sort of elevate them to sort of king-like status, I'm afraid. We do have an obsession with presidents. We refer to them as sort of a kingly title. We call them the ruler of the free world or the leader of the free world, which is sort of a higher thing than an executive branch in in a democracy. We admire some, we ridicule others, we argue about some, we deify some, we demonize others. And yet we can confidently say of each of them, they're all sinners, they all thirsted for power, and they all die. So as we compare these worldly rulers and worldly kingdoms to the ruler in God's kingdom, I just want to notice some contrasts. This is Luke chapter 1. Mary is visited by an angel telling her of a special child that will be born to her. And I want you to listen to this king being described. He'll be born to her. Luke 1 and verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no Before Jesus is born, we are told he will sit on the throne of David and the kingdom he rules over will be eternal, no end. Its ruler will never be dethroned. What earthly king has ever been able to say that? Go with me to John 18. At the other end of Jesus' life, there is a huge statement of Jesus' kingship. This is John 18 and verse 33. And Jesus' interaction with Pontius Pilate. In John 18 and verse 33. John 18 and verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do, not say, do, you, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might be delivered, uh, I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. See, one of the things we see here in this really stark contrast between an earthly ruler and Jesus uh, of, of the kingdom of heaven is that worldly men like Pilate, people who are consumed with sort of, sort of, gathering power, amassing power, utilizing power in an earthly sense, really never seem to understand the kingship of Jesus. As Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, or in verse 36, my kingdom is not from this world. 
It is not limited to some arbitrary border. And really, most on the nose is the means of this kingdom. It is not advanced to the point of the sword. If it were of this world, that's what we would be doing. But since it is not, we are not doing that. It is unlike what you understand kingdom to be. One more passage to turn to on this point. Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, there's a great teaching moment here. In Matthew chapter 20, the apostles make the mistake of thinking about God's kingdom in earthly terms. Um, This is the story where where the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and she's asking for a special place in Jesus' kingdom for her sons. And the other apostles hear it in their outrage, not because they've misunderstood kingdom, but basically because they didn't think of the idea first. And they say, well, what about our special place? And so Jesus corrects all of them by contrasting his kingdom and worldly kingdoms. This is Matthew 20 and verse 25. Matthew 20 and verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom Jesus says to these power-hungry men is that mine is not a kingdom for power-hungry office-seekers. It is a kingdom for humble servants who serve not their own interests but their neighbors. And he reminds us in verse 28 that I'm not asking you to do anything that I myself am not going to do and, and, and I'm not, am not doing. That Paradoxically, our king is the consummate servant. He is the greatest servant. That's why he gets to be king. He sacrificed his life for his underlings. In other places, Jesus talks about how his kingship is, is not, a, it's not a stingy one. It's not a self-serving one. He is a good and benevolent and loving king. And so in Luke 12, 32, he says, Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, so let me just end with, with sort of this observation. In comparing Jesus' kingship to, to modern kingships. Um, generally speaking, if you look around the world today, there's sort of two models of kings, two models of emperors in our world today. Number one is to have a figurehead with no real actual power. And, and, and they're often sort of good-natured and benevolent, but they don't actually have any power. So think of the United Kingdom. Think of uh, the Queen of England just recently died. She seemed like a, a, a nice lady, um, nothing really offensive about her. But we understand she's not making any real decisions. She's there for the ceremony. She's there as a figurehead. And so that's sort of one model of kingship. This sort of antiquated thing they kept around for nostalgic reasons and for a figurehead, but no real power. The second modern model of kingship is sort of a king or a ruler who's definitely got power, but is in no sense benevolent and is not good. Think of, think of uh, North Korea, um, these sort of cults of personality where these, these great leaders go and they, and they kill anyone who might rival them and they're you know, threatening people with nuclear weapons and all of this. We've got kings today who are either powerful but evil or benevolent but weak. What we have in Jesus is one who is all-powerful and all-good. How wonderful to be able to call Jesus our king. Here is what we need to be doing. The Hebrew writer says this. When we understand Jesus' kingship, Jesus' supremacy... 
Here's what we do. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. When you understand the kind of king Jesus is, there is worship, there is reverence, there is gratitude. Kingdoms have rulers. Number two, kingdoms have laws. Kingdoms have laws. Go with me to Matthew 7. We'll be there in a minute. Matthew 7. So this is another common characteristic of all kingdoms, and that is they have laws. That's part of what makes a kingdom a kingdom. A kingdom without laws would simply be anarchy. There would be no rule happening. Kingdoms involve rule, and in order to rule, there are rules to follow. There are laws to follow. So as we sort of survey the landscape of, of kingdom laws, maybe here's a, here's a good place to begin. One of the most famous codes of law in history is the Code of Hammurabi. Code of Hammurabi dates to 1754 B.C., very old law, enacted by the Babylonian king Hammurabi. It consisted of eight, uh, 282 laws with accompanying punishments for breaking them. It's famous for the sort of eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-a-tooth logic um, although that's not really an accurate description of the law, um, routinely in this law, the punishments for the same crime will be harsher for a lower class person and lighter for a richer person. And so really it's not accurate to call it just or, or to be fair in that way. We live in a country that has an ever-growing number of laws. Um, I tried, I earnestly tried to find the number of federal laws on the books. We're just talking federal laws. There's also state and local laws, but just federal laws. Um, do you know how many federal laws are on the books? The answer is, the true answer is, nobody knows. Um, when federal laws were first codified in 1927, they fit into a single bound volume. By the 1980s, it took 50 volumes containing 23,000 pages but today, it is so many that no one has even bothered to count. Just to give you one illustration, there are about 20,000 laws governing the use and ownership of firearms alone. Just 20,000 laws just on that one, one thing. And then when we go down to the state level and local level, there are some laws on the books in the U.S. that range from outdated to bizarre to just nonsensical. I'll give you a few examples. Um, the state of Arizona, cutting down a cactus can land you in prison for 25 years. In Connecticut, a pickle cannot legally be considered a pickle unless it bounces when it is dropped, All right, just in case you're wondering. In Louisiana, if you bite someone with your natural teeth, that's con considered simple assault, but if you bite someone with false teeth, that's considered aggravated assault, a more serious charge. In the city of Houston, it is illegal to sell Limburger cheese on Sunday. Okay. The laws of the kingdoms of men are sometimes illogical and are often ridiculous. And then we, we should also consider more seriously the laws of Israel and that kingdom. The law of Moses governed that nation for centuries. And we need to give a lot of credit to that law. It is a God-given law. It combines religious and civil and criminal and commercial law all in one. And of course, anything given by God is good. And yet, that law, as good as it is, it was not intended to be forever. It was provisional. And the Apostle Paul argues is deficient in several ways. The main one, according to Paul, is what it cannot do. It cannot take away sin. It can identify sin. It can condemn and punish sin. But it cannot take it away or forgive it. It taught the people they were sinners. It didn't show them how they could be righteous after their sin. 
And so Romans 3 and verse 24, by works of the law, he's thinking primarily about the law of Moses. By works of the law, no human will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What Paul's arguing there is if the Jews are hoping to be saved through their perfect law of Moses keeping, they're all out of luck. Even the best of worldly kingdoms have insufficient laws. They are sometimes arbitrary. They are often unwieldy. They are not always just. And none of them, not even the best law, the God-given one, can solve man's sin problem. What then about God's heavenly kingdom? This is Matthew 7 and verse 21. Matthew 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. God's kingdom does have laws. God does have expectations of his kingdom citizens. It is not an anarchy. The kingdom of God is not an anarchy. And what Jesus says here is we do not just say Lord. We do not just pay lip service to Jesus as Lord. We live like the Lord really is the Lord, the Lord over all of life, and His will is paramount. This is Matthew 22, one of the most important passages about this kingdom's laws. Matthew 22, in verse 39. God did not create a law book in the New Covenant with an uncountable number of laws for citizens of His kingdom. Jesus does not want a kingdom of pharisaical lawyers seeking loopholes and workarounds for every little command, which is what ended up happening with a lot of the Old Testament. I want you to listen to Jesus answer one of these lawyers who's looking for loopholes and and sort of um, imposing a legalese on the law of Moses. And Jesus calls us to this kind of thinking about the law. This is Matthew 22 and verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, What is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first, the great and first commandment. There is a great and a first commandment. And as you think about that law in verse 38, to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the question is, where do you find the bottom of that law? How do you do the bare minimum of loving God with all of who you are? What loophole is there? What, what way out do I have so that I don't actually have to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? See, this is the kind of law-keeping we're called to. This is verse 39, the second great command. The second is like it, he says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the commands of the New Testament, all the examples given, all the inferences that we're supposed to draw fall under the umbrella of what Jesus calls the great commandments. What Jesus is saying is this will not be a kingdom of lawyers. This will be a kingdom of servants of God who dedicate themselves to these great commandments. And of course, undergirding this law of the kingdom of God is a God of grace. We understand that we merit nothing through doing good things for God, though God still wants us to do good works. But as John says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. We need to be grateful to be a citizen of a kingdom with a ruler who writes his laws, not on cold stone tablets or unreadable documents full of legalese. We need to be grateful to be citizens of a kingdom that has laws that are written, as the Hebrew writer says, on our hearts. I will put my law on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Hebrews 10 and verse 16. Kingdoms have laws. Finally, in number three, 
Kingdoms have citizens. Go with me to Galatians 3. We'll be there in a second. Galatians chapter 3. So a kingdom with a ruler and a kingdom with laws but no citizens cannot really be called a kingdom either. If you have a kingdom with a ruler and laws but no citizens, basically you just have a guy with a pen and paper and imaginary ideas of what he'd like people to do but no people to do them. What constitutes a kingdom after the king are the citizens who follow the king. And as we think about the the notion of citizenship, we think of Israel and Judah, and we think of their citizens, and it heavily favors the ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the citizens of that kingdom. We know the Jews took great pride in their ancestry as they proudly proclaimed to Jesus, we are offspring of Abraham in John 8. Now, there is an occasional proselyte in ancient Israel who's important to the story, whether that's Ruth or Rahab or someone like that. But citizenship, by and large, is very limited. It's very ethnocentric uh, in the Old Testament. There are, of course, terrible stories of how kingdoms treat citizens uh, in the modern day. It seems like not a decade goes by without some sort of ethnic or religious genocide in some, some part of the world in some abominable way that a kingdom treats their citizens, whether that's Nazi Germany or Eastern Europe and Chechnya or Rwanda or or wherever. To be fair, there are kingdoms in history that treat their citizens a little bit better. Rome had a fairly liberal citizenship policy. Citizenship could be earned through doing things like serving the military or, uh, or buying it outright. People like the Apostle Paul were born into Roman colonies where uh, were granted citizenship. And yet, yet even Paul's Roman citizenship doesn't keep him from being executed by his government for unjust reasons. The earthly kingdom we live in grants citizenship the primary ways to those who are simply born in the borders of it. And so all natural-born citizens, as, as proud of we are of, of that fact, we have to admit it's a product of an accident of birth that we didn't do anything to deserve. Kingdoms of the world are usually based citizenship, based their citizenship on race or ethnicity, birthplace, or some other criteria. Well, what is a criteria of citizenship in the kingdom of God? This is Galatians 3 and verse 25. Galatians 3 and verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul says the criterion for citizenship is not racial, it's not ancestral, there is neither Jew nor Greek. The criterion is not socioeconomic. There is neither slave nor free. You don't earn it or unearn it through the amount of money or your status, your status in society. The criterion is not gender. There's neither male nor female in this kingdom. Here's the criteria. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. And we become Christ's by believing in him and by putting him on on baptism, putting him on on baptism. You remember the final promise to Abraham was that through your seed, all nations, all families of the earth will be blessed. And this says God has made good on that promise in a very real way in the kingdom of God. So if, the basis, uh, if it is not on the basis of race or tribe or class or gender or other things, what does a kingdom citizen actually look like? 
How do they live? How do they behave? I want to spend the rest of our time in the Gospel of Matthew. Just look at a few little passages. And I want us to see Jesus describe the kind of person a kingdom citizen is. I think the first sort of, the first sort of ground, groundwork Jesus lays on this is in the Sermon on the Mount at Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, which we're not going to read. But the Beatitudes teach us at base what kind of character the kingdom citizen has, the kind of person that is a member of Jesus' kingdom. And what Jesus really emphasizes is it's sort of a counterintuitive citizen. And so it's not the rich man who is valued, but rather the poor in spirit. And it's not the happy-go-lucky, it's the mourner. It's not the proud, it's the meek. It's not the oppressor, it's the merciful. It's not the corrupt, it's the pure. It's not the self-willed aggressor, it's the peacemaker. It's not for those who never experience hardship, it's for the persecuted. This is the kind of person who's worthy to be a kingdom citizen. This is Matthew 6, Matthew 6 and verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God, we are told, and his, and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom is for those who will seek it. Seek it first, a word of priority, above anything else. The kingdom is for seekers. This is Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is a kingdom for doers. Not kingdom for kingdom for merely sayers of God's will, but doers of it. Or in Matthew 8. In Matthew 8, Jesus had just marveled at the faith of a Gentile centurion. And he comments on the presence of many Gentiles in the kingdom. While many Jews who thought they were kingdom citizens by, by, by dint of birth will be cast out. So this is Matthew 8 and verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the parable of the sower in, in Matthew 13, Jesus teaches that the kingdom is for the good soil. It's for the good-hearted who will hear the word of God, who will understand the word of God, and who will live in light of the word of God, who will bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Or this is Matthew 13 and verse 44. In Matthew 13 and verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The message is that the kingdom is, is for those who value it so much that they will give up everything else to gain it. The kingdom is for people who understand the kingdom to be the most important thing in the world. One more passage to read, Matthew 18 and verse 1. In Matthew 18 and verse 1, Jesus tells, tells us who the kingdom is for. Matthew 18 and verse 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He says it's this child, one who was like this child, innocent, pure-hearted, and above all, humble. We could go on. At the end of, of Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable of an unforgiving servant. The lesson is the kingdom is for forgivers. In Matthew 21, Jesus says the kingdom is for doers and not just sayers. Matthew 25, the kingdom is for the prepared. 
In Matthew, the later in Matthew 25, the kingdom is for the merciful and the benevolent, not the stingy and the selfish. Citizens in God's kingdom are the redeemed children of God, bought with the blood of Christ, who are becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what a citizen of the kingdom of God is. I think uh, Daniel 2 is one of the most astounding passages in all of Scripture for many reasons. That's where Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him how each section of this great statue he saw in his dream represents a different world kingdom. He's predicting the future. The head of gold representing the Babylonian Empire, the silver arms and chest representing the Medo-Persian Empire, the bronze belly and thighs representing Greece, the iron legs and feet representing Rome, iron and clay legs and feet representing Rome. And then he compares those kingdoms to one that is coming later. He says, in the days of those kings, those last kings in Rome, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it, this kingdom, shall last forever. He says, as great as the statue looks, it doesn't look great at the end. And as great as these kingdoms were or will be, there's a new and better one that's going to last forever. Its ruler will not be some despot or some elected populist groveling for power. Its ruler will be the almighty God, the risen Christ. And the laws of this kingdom are not written on giant unwieldy scrolls that no one can ever look at or understand. It's not written full of legalese and antiquated ordinances that don't make any sense. Its laws are written on the hearts of willing servants who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the citizens of this kingdom, it's not, a, it's not a people of a certain race, of a certain tribe, of a certain nationality. It's the redeemed children of God wherever they're found from any race, tribe, or nationality. Daniel's account of the kingdoms of men is fascinating. He's telling the future of human history. And I think we could say... If Daniel wanted, if, if God inspiring Daniel wanted, he could have kept on predicting, even past Rome if he wanted to. And yet, as far as God is concerned, after this new kingdom arrives in the time of Rome, this new kingdom arrives in the first century, as far as Daniel's concerned, there's no other kingdoms even worth mentioning after that one because the one true kingdom, the one eternal kingdom comes. And as we open the New Testament, we're informed that that kingdom is at hand. That's what Jesus preaches and is even now breaking into the world. And there is only one kingdom that we will be eternally proud and grateful to be a member of or eternally regretful because we weren't a member of it. Its headquarters are in heaven and its ruler is God. And the question I have for you is, are you a part of that kingdom? Will you pledge your allegiance, your ultimate allegiance to that kingdom? Will you act like a citizen? Will you submit to its ruler? Will you obey his laws? If you need to come and make yourself right with King Jesus, to bow before his throne and submit yourself to his rule, we offer that opportunity right now as we stand and sing. God is So far from his presence come today, hear his loving voice calling still, calling now for thee, oh we 
free prodigal come. Come there, spread in the house of thy father, and to spare. Hear, O hear him calling, calling now for thee. Lo, the table is spread, and the feast is waiting there. Here is loving voice calling still. Calling now for thee, O weary prodigal, come. Calling now for thee, O weary prodigal, Thomas will lead us in a word of prayer at this time.